Turn your Bible to Daniel chapter 8, beginning with verse 23. Daniel 8, 23. We speak tonight about the coming crisis, and I will, the Lord willing, not speak very long, but I want to lay on your hearts that we are in the midst of crises all the time, but there's coming a crisis like no other crisis. And I hope you will stay with us in thought as we think through this, what the Word of God says. In Daniel chapter 8, as we studied in Sunday school this morning, the first part of the vision that Daniel had was like a dream. It had to do with the Babylonian Empire being overthrown by the Medo-Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire being overthrown by the Greek, Greco, or the Grecian Empire and Alexander the Great and so on. And then Alexander died and there were four generals that took over and one of them was the general of Syria. His name was Antigus Epiphanes. And he is pictured in this pa passage as one who worked an abomination of desolation in the temple in Jerusalem. He made a covenant with the Jews for three years, or seven years. And after three years, he broke that covenant and he offered a sow on the Jewish altar and erected an image of Jupiter on that altar. And this was a disgrace to the Jews and the temple was empty for many years until the Maccabees came along and they revolted against that Antigus Epiphanes rule. And they whipped them out of Jerusalem. And for nearly a hundred years, the Maccabeans had a type of conditional state of Israel. But it was always in danger. And the walls were always being attacked. And then Rome came marching in. And the Roman Empire overwhelmed the entire world of that day. If we had not stopped Hitler at Normandy, our world would be somewhat like the world was under Roman rule. Only Hitler was a madman, despicable, and I don't know how they'll rewrite history, but don't you believe anybody that says the reason we went to war was for our own glory. That was the most despicable war in history. And we went to war because of Hitler and Mussolini and Tojo. And they all tried to crowd America and take over this nation. Well, that's what happened when Rome took over Syria and Rome took over Palestine. And the Roman Empire rose to zenith power. And, the, and all of this is detailed as part of history. And then he says, this is not just part of history. This is a vision for the end times. Something that is yet to come. And if you'll begin in Daniel 8, beginning in verse 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up, and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully, and shall prosper and continue, and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. 
And through his policy, you know, this is state, Satan's strategy. You ought to mark it in your Bible here. Here's how he works. Through his policy, number one, he shall cause deceit to prosper in his hand. He's a man of deceit. You can never believe him. You can never count on him. He's a deceiver from the beginning. Jesus said, he is a, you're of your father, the devil. And he was a liar from the beginning. And just like he lies, you lie. That all came from Satan. Number two, he shall magnify himself in his heart. That is, he'll exalt himself and set himself up as God. He will rule in the world. And Revelation chapter 13 tells us about two beasts, one coming from the sea, the other coming from the land. And the one from the sea is the great governmental beast. And the one from the land is the prophetic beast, a false prophet, if you will. And he will cause everybody in the world to worship before the image of the first beast. This is the Antichrist and the false prophet. This will be revealed and unveiled during the tribulation period. But his strategy already is at work. The scripture says the mystery of iniquity doth already work. It's already there. Notice the third, by peace shall he destroy many. When the Antichrist rides into power, he's not going to be riding in conquering with bows and arrows and guns and so on. He has a bow in his hand according to Revelation 6, but no arrow. He's not going to fight. He's going to come with all the answers to the world's needs and the world will elect him. We'll want him because he knows the answer to all the needs and the problems of the world. And we'll say, hooray, we've finally gotten somebody that can solve all the problems. Did you know that when Hitler rose to power, he was elected in 1933, just like Franklin Roosevelt was elected in 1933? The people of Germany elected him. He campaigned by having his picture made in front of churches. And the implication was that here's Hitler the Christian, and he's going to restore Germany and get rid of all this high inflation. And, uh, and you know, after World War I, inflation got so bad they had to have a wheelbarrow full of money to buy a loaf of bread. And Hitler came to, to solve all that. And they elected him. That's the reason they closed their eyes when those freight cars started going over to Poland and to the death camps. They didn't want to see it. They didn't know what was going on. America didn't want to see it. We didn't know what was going on. That's the strategy of Satan. It always has been. It is tonight. It will be as long as Satan is loose. One day he will be chained for a thousand years and Jesus will rule and reign in this world and no longer will we be under the tyranny of this deceit. Last, the last thing, he shall also stand up against the prince of princes. Mark that last phrase, but he shall be broken without hand. He may rule in the affairs of men. He may rule the nations. He may get all of our opinions on his side. We may not have any discernment at all and just go all along with him. There's coming a day, though, when he'll be revealed for what he is. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 reminds us that will not happen. 
until there's a gathering up and those who are God's people are carried home to be with the Jesus at the rapture. And down here on earth, the world will grow dark, but the first three and a half years will be years of peace, peace. An affair and a, an agreement and covenant will be made with Israel, between the Arabs and Israel, and there'll be peace. And in the middle of that, that covenant will be broken. And the man of sin will be revealed for what he is. Now, when you hear people say, well, I know who the Antichrist is, or he's this person or that person, or he comes from this ethnic group or this ethnic group, you can just write it down that they're saying their opinion. I don't believe the Bible's that clear about it. He could come from the Middle East. He could come from the revived Roman Empire. He could come from the Jewish people. He could come from the Arab people. I don't know where he's going to come from. I read a uh, at Moody Bible Institute a number of years ago, there was a professor named Kenneth Waste, and he wrote a wonderful book on the end times. And in it, he said his opinion was that the Antichrist would be the resurrected Judas Iscariot. He'd be everything that Christ was, only he'll be more. Song Mong Moon says he is everything Christ ought to have been. Christ made a mistake. He didn't get married, didn't have any children. And that was a terrible tragedy. And so he is in his stead now and he's in the new Christ and he's going to take over everything. And he's, when he, was, when he was in Korea, he married a lot of different women, had a lot of children. When he came to America, they kicked him out of Korea incidentally. When he came to America, the government wouldn't let him have a lot of wives. So he reduced this to spiritual children. And a few months ago, up in New York, they had a huge gathering and they married 25,000 people in one marriage ceremony. And he said, those children of yours will be my spiritual children. And they go out as moonies. Now, this is part of the deceit. I'm not saying that moon is the Antichrist. I don't believe that. I don't believe we'll recognize him until we're all gone but he's part of the strategy of Satan. Now, we're facing a crisis in December. They call it the crisis that will take its great toll in American history and in the world. They call it the Y2K crisis. And I have articles here about that, and I wanna tell you there are two or three reactions to this. Some react to it just like they react to the second coming of Christ. They say, oh, oh um, they've talked about that all along. There's not going to be any real problem. Ladies and gentlemen, there may be a problem. The computer crisis may cause water to fail and electricity to fail and uh, food not able to get to the market. I don't know. I'm certainly not an alarmist. I'm saying nobody knows for sure what's going to happen. But we need to prepare. We need to recognize it. I do not know when Christ is coming, but we need to prepare. We need to recognize it. And we're just a few months away from that crisis time in December when almost everybody says there's going to be a severe problem. I want to read just a little bit of an article from the paper. In a recent report from Robert Rubin, the U.S. Secretary Treasurer said he expects the USA will be able to deal with the problem in a reasonable fashion, 
but noted that there are concerns that other countries might not. Still, he said it is unlikely the bug poses a big risk for global economy. Russia is pleading for help and openly admits that they are not Y2K ready and they do not have the money to deal with it either. In Moscow, Russia said Wednesday, it needs up to $3 billion to tackle its, its year 2000 computer glitch, six times the original estimate. And he appealed to the United States and NATO to help fix computers that control Russia. Now listen to this, especially Russia's nuclear weapons, which could be unleashed by mistake and start a world war. China acknowledges that they are way behind on the issue. Meanwhile, in China, a survey of the country's most crucial enterprises showed that more than half didn't even know how to detect the computer glitch in their systems. Chinese officials doubt government ministries can meet in an October deadline for fixing their systems. Little assistance is being provided to agencies and enterprises outside crucial finance aviation. Although government industry and almost every institution in the country is pressing hard to be prepared, there's another side to, which, to this which you must not overlook. That is a personal readiness. And he goes on to say what we need to do. Get ready, store up some water, store up some food, store up, uh, get some uh, kind of electric power, candles or oil lamps or something and be ready. Now I'm not trying to alarm you, I'm just saying we need to recognize that this is possible, a crisis that God is allowing us to know about in advance to prepare us for the second coming of Christ. I'm not saying the second coming of Christ will come in December. It might come tonight. It might come tomorrow. Every one of us needs to be prepared. The preparation we need is not to store up our food and store up our water, but to get our heart right with God. Get our spiritual thinking right. Get it on the right track. Offer ourselves to God to say, Lord, if I have two hours, 20 hours, 24 days, or six months, or 25 years, I'm going to honor Christ with my life and give it to Him. The Y2K crisis, I don't know what will happen. We may speak again on this issue, we may discuss it in training union. I think everybody needs to be aware of it, and we need to prepare for it. But that's not the only crisis we're going to face. We're facing other crises. People today are fa facing moral crises. Never has there been a time when so many thought so little of moral values. You hear it over and over again. What's wrong with sleeping together before you get married? What's wrong with premarital sex? Everybody's doing it. What's wrong with boys and girls sleeping in the same dormitory? That's an abomination in my judgment. Sorry Western went that direction. What's wrong with having a roommate that's a girl and a guy and a girl living together? What's wrong with that? I go to house after house in this city, knock on a door, and some guy comes and says, well, I want you to meet my girlfriend. So I talked to her a few minutes. I said, where do you live? She said, I live here. No shame at all about it at all. Ladies and gentlemen, that's not wise. Even if they're not physically involved, that's still not wise. They define, they're defying human nature. 
you can't tell me that a girl and guy could live in the same, call themselves roommates and live in the same place and not have temptations to be together. I don't believe that. You need to flee these things. And we're facing a moral crisis of double proportions and nobody seems to be able to do much about it. We need some girls who will stand and say, I'm going to be a modern day Mary. I'm going to be somebody that Jesus could trust with his secrets. You think of Mary, the mother of Christ. He, she was about 14 or 15 maybe when, when the angel appeared to her in, in, in Nazareth and said, Hail Mary, thou art favored among women. And he told her that she was to become the mother of the Messiah. That holy thing which was to be conceived in her was of God. There was no physical union with any man. And she said, how can this be when I don't know anybody? I don't even know a man. And God said, with, with God, nothing is impossible. And God did a miracle. And girls, I'd like to ask you to let Mary be your hero, your role model. I told you this before, and I just tell it again as a warning. I had lunch with several guys, oh, maybe 10 years ago, 15. We went over here to the Ponderosa, the old Ponderosa, before they remodeled it. <clears throat> we were sitting there eating, and I said to those guys, who is your hero or role model? One of those guys said, the Apostle Paul. I thought that was great. He told me a little bit about Paul. One of the other guys said, well, I think D.L. Moody was my hero. And he told me a little about Moody. I thought that was great. The other guy said, Elvis Presley is my hero. And it put up a big, big SOS in my heart. I tried to work with this guy and help him but I saw he came to church intermittently. He'd come a while and then drift off, come a while and then drift off, come a while and then drift off. Of the three that I spoke of just now, two are going on great with God. The one whose hero was Elvis Presley never goes to church. He's been divorced, never serves the Lord. Who your role models are, who your heroes are, means so very much, and that's part of the crisis. Some of you have movie actors as your heroes. Some of you have these athletes as your hero. One of those big wrestlers understands in jail again. And the whole world goes out and falls before them and pays huge prices to get in and see them and gives them huge, huge fortunes which are immoral. And they don't have any standards at all. And excuse my language, but some of you are saps enough to follow that kind of thing. I think it's wicked and sinful to give somebody just in the athletic world just because he can throw a ball or he can kick a ball to give him a million dollars. See, what kind of crisis do we face? A lot of times people are not even aware of this crisis. They, they don't think it's a crisis because everybody's doing it. You hear it on the radio all the time. You hear it constantly on television. You hear it everywhere. And the great exciting things about the ball games and so on. Listen, the sports problem in America is of 
unbelievable proportions. And there are a lot of God's people that are all wrapped up in it. The moral crisis, the sports crisis, the governmental crisis. I believe we need to know who we're voting for. Know something about them. I believe that a man that serves as the, off- the highest office of this land ought to pass the credentials that a deacon would pass. It ought to be godly. It ought to be spirit-filled. There's far, far more to the problem than just the economy. It has to do with the man that you've trusted to lead this nation. And we're facing the crisis of one world government and one world church. The ecumenical movement started years ago, and first it was mergers and unions. Then they did away with that. They thought, thought it wasn't working. They still had some of that. The, some of the groups merged with each other, and they called themselves a new name. But today, there are not very, very many mergers going on, but there's an ecumenical movement. And you may not like this, but one of the ecumenical movements is the promise keepers. You get together with people that have no, it's it's supposed to be a spiritual thing, but they have no denominational basis. Someone asked the founder of the promise keepers, what do you say about creation? Was the world created by God or did it just evolve? Was it evolution? Oh, he said, we don't deal with issues like that. We think that's not a main issue. Uh, The evolutionists feel fine with us. The creationists feel fine with us. We don't have any stand on things like that. That's too broad, brother. And that's a crisis because little by little this is being watered down and people don't have any stand on anything. We're facing a crisis of huge dimensions. And God's people are being taken into it. They, they, they love to have it so. Well, I'm just warning you, this is the devil's strategy. His strategy is to deceive, to blindfold. And perhaps the most gullible people on earth are Baptists. Did you know what some of the cults do? On Sunday morning, they go knocking on doors to find Baptists that didn't go to church, and they try to convert them to their cult position. And there are a lot of them, a lot of them. In my judgment, they're not saved Baptists. I'm not judge. They may be. I don't know. But they're all messed up. I I went to see a lady uh, some years ago. She called me on the phone and asked me to come and see her. So I went. And when I got to the door, she was crying. And I went in and, and she said, I just want to tell you that I've messed my whole family up. I said, well, what, what did you do? She said, I was saved as a young teenager. I knew the Lord, loved him. And then I married a man that was not saved. And I dropped out of church. He dropped out of church. And then some Mormons came by And they knocked on our door, and I had a hungry heart, and they began to give us Bible lessons in their position. She said, I gobbled it all up. I led my husband and my children into that group. And she said, I've been in it for 10 years, 
And now I realize that it's not truth. She said, I'm saved. I was saved as a Baptist years ago. But she said, I've gotten my husband and my children in this, and I don't know what to do because they laugh at me when I tell them that what they're dealing with is not truth. Deception. It's all around us. And we're going to face it more and more and more. The crisis we face is of dramatic credentials and bigness and hugeness. And most of us just go, okay, sirrah, sirrah. Now, I don't know how concerned we ought to be about uh, December and January 1st of 2000. I don't think we ought to worry. I don't think we ought to wring our hands. I don't think we ought to pull our hair. I don't think we ought to commit suicide. I don't think we ought to just say, well, I don't know what world we're going to do. Prepare best way you can. Put some water aside, get some candles out and get some matches and uh, find some way to uh, uh, have some food there and so on and uh, just trust the Lord. I don't think we have to worry. I would worry far more about the unpreparedness of our young people in facing the moral crisis today. And that crisis isn't going to be in December. It's right now. It's right here in this church tonight. It's tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. Sometimes you may get weary of my giving some illustrations, but I want to give them anyway. I believe that young people ought to seek godly counsel before they date anybody. First of all, they need to have the permission of their parents. Now, you won't like this, but they ought to have the permission of their pastor. Sometimes a pastor knows a little bit more than the parent about somebody they're dating. I don't believe you ought to marry somebody your parents don't appreciate and don't want you to marry. And I certainly don't think you ought to marry somebody that your pastor doesn't want you to marry. We had a young man in our church years ago. He said he's called to preach. He was with all the young people in every event we had. Some of you would know him if I called his name. He was here all the time, involved in everything. And uh, he, he just was faithful and so on. We have pictures of him with other preacher groups. And one day he came to me and he said, I want to marry so-and-so. And I want you to marry him next week. I said, I can't do that. I already knew the girl he was talking about. I said, I can't do that. I won't. I can't do it. If you, you need to wait a year at least. Well, he got furious at me. He moved his membership, joined another church, and got that preacher to marry them. In one year, one year, he was divorced. He came back to town with beards and long hair. He was all mixed up in his thinking and philosophy. And beloved, now he's in prison serving a life sentence. A moral crisis. I want to submit to you tonight, if you know the Lord, find out from him his permission before you get involved. I've known some guys 
that have so much uh, overcharge in their lives of energy and sexual energy that they go with some nice girl and they can hardly wait to get their arm around her neck and then down a little bit farther in her bosom and then close off and in bed somewhere and then that girl's beauty is robbed. She didn't have enough stamina to say, no, I'm not going to do that. Moral values. Moms and dads teach your kids moral values. I think it's responsibility of parents to see what their kids wear. Some of the kids wear kind of clothes that are so tight and clingy that you can't help but notice everything they've got. And you may think I'm being vulgar. I'm not. I'm just telling you the truth. That's the way it is. This is a crisis time, a moral crisis. And moms and dads, beginning tonight, do something about it. You can do it. God will help you. I know I'm old-fashioned, old fogey. But I don't think a boy and girl ought to have any relations before they get married. The scripture says, avoid fornication. Sanctify yourself. Avoid fornication. Be what God wants you to be. So we've got to decide whether we're going to live by Hollywood standards or the Bible standards. Whether we're going to listen to what the movies say or what God says. Is Mary going to be your hero? Or is some movie actor that's divorced three or four times and makes millions and millions of dollars and gets in bed on the movies with some guy, that going to be your hero? I think you're wicked to even watch those things. That's pornography, and it's legal right on the movies. If you're going to have a television, get one that has a VCR and go, get some wonderful biblical VCR material and use that all the time. And take down your aerial. Don't pick up all this trash. You say, well, preacher, you're way out in left field. I probably am. But God laid this on my heart tonight to just say to you, we're facing a terrible crisis and it's coming. It's already here and it's going to be more severe. And I want to tell you, it is from the pits of hell. The crisis is Satan's strategy. Not only what he's going to do in the tribulation period, not only what he's going to do in, the, in world history, but what he does right now. Jesus said, you're of your father the devil. He was a liar and you're a liar, just like your father the devil. And so, Lord help us to come to grips with all that and know that Jesus is the answer. We can flee to him. There is a bomb in Gilead. The story is not all defeat. You don't have to give up and twiddle your fingers and say, well, there's nothing I can do. There's a lot we can do. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. This is contingent on believers. If you're not a believer and you sit under the word of God, God help you to get convicted and come to Christ. And if you are Christ's, live like it. Live like it. Serve like it. 
In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You can do it. Just look to Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 12, wherefore seeing we are encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the warnings of Scripture. The crisis times are upon us. They are symbolized by the worry the world has over the computers. But Lord, that's just a little part of the crisis we face. We pray that in this place tonight, someone who has never been saved would turn to Jesus and let Christ come in and put away pride and all those things and let Jesus be Savior and Lord. And Lord, encourage God's people to put Jesus on the throne to live for him and work for him and serve him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, please. What's the number? 486, I am resolved. 486, I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delight. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. Would you tonight resolve in your heart that Christ will be first? If you're here and you're not saved, come to Christ. Trust him as your savior. If you are saved, would you sell out to him and just say, Lord, I want you to be absolutely first in my life. I want to honor Christ with all there is of me. And whatever crisis comes, I'll have decided in advance. Every Sunday night for years, our teen time closes with a song, I have decided, I've made up my mind, I will serve the Lord. So the decision about liquor, the decision about lust, the decision about other things it is settled if you've made up your mind in advance. So same thing with true with drugs and all the rest. Now I know we're weak. We have mortal we dwell in mortal flesh and it's weak. And the moment we sin, we need to go quickly to the cross and ask Christ to forgive us and cleanse us and get going again. You do what God tells you to do about this invitation tonight. God bless you.